You're listening to Festival Grasp. A podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario. And Shanae. Well, welcome everybody to the newscast in this week's edition. DJ Eric Murillo found dead in Florida. Hundreds head to desert to celebrate Burning Man, ignoring cancellation. Illicit rave in Norway results in 27 poisoned from carbon monoxide. A psychedelic startup is testing an app for taking recreational LSD trips more responsibly, just in time for virtual Burning Man. Festival Reading and Leads announces all-male headliners. And up first, here's how the pandemic has affected the EDM industry, yet DJs are still profiting. This article in Crossfader says here that perhaps many didn't estimate 2020 to turn out this way. 2019 had given an insight in how the electronic dance music industry could be in the next year. An increase in festivals, more streaming income, and also a surge in revenues for the DJs. DJs had been booked three to six months in advance, even before the unusual summer raves. The pandemic, though, halted all of those plans. Ever since Coachella had to be postponed, the hordes of Ibiza festivals that had been planned were scratched off and ideas were being re-engineered backwards. It goes on to say, uh, before the pandemic, it has been estimated that the global dance music industry could go past 1.1 billion earnings it made in 2019. However, since the pandemic, the annual IMS business report revealed that there might be a drop in the electronic DJ and artist's income from 1.1 it earned in 2019 to 0.4 billion in 2020. That is a massive drop. And this negative impact, of course, is because 350 electronic festivals have been canceled or postponed. And as we found out now, a lot of the ones that were thought to be postponed are dropping like flies so nothing really is going to happen until 2021. So New York-based DJ manager Max Leader shared his view when he was interviewed on the Grammys website. He said, these promoters, some of them are monthly promoters, and they try to honor deals. Now you lose one show for artists of the caliber that I work with, you could lose twenty-five dollars to $30,000. If you lose that amount two or three times in a row, you could be out of business. So the reality here is that there's massive crews that these uh, that these fees go towards and the production splits about 85% of the ticket revenue after, you know, the hard costs of venue cost taxes and, and other associated fees that you can't avoid when you're running festivals. And the other people that, you know, that are in the split of revenue are performers, management, promoters, drivers and transport, audiovisual staff, medical staff, stagehands, electricians, lighting specialists, stage equipment, forklifts, catering, liability insurance. I mean, it just goes on and on here. Okay. So the question is in this article that I've been able to gather, Shanae, is whether there's going to be enough money to be made in the coming year when things kind of get back to normal. And there is this obvious virtual live stream solution that is being proposed. And obviously we've seen some festivals that we've even reported on the show that have done very, very well in terms of showing us the future potentially, and even that it can be a profitable future at that. David Guetta started it back in April when he combined about 49 million people to tune in to his United at Home concerts and it helped him raise 
$1.2 million as a COVID-19 relief effort. So he wasn't charging for that. He was simply asking for donations. Uh, but he's got, you know, he's got a lot of a draw. And I'm sure it didn't do him any harm in terms of giving him much needed publicity at a time where everyone was paying attention. We mentioned Tomorrowland in our show. They're, they're going to be the leaders. And then there's this good quote here by UK-based DJ Gareth Emery, and he felt he generated during this, this uh, pandemic uh, time here a good amount of money from a ticketed event through the platform Tickster. He says you can still create anticipation by limiting it to a thousand people. So not everyone can get in and you're generating ticket revenue. And my question here to you, Shanae, is... It's okay to look at this as a lot of famous DJs, DJs with tools, with reputations, with friends in high places, if you will, uh, being able to overcome and succeed. But unfortunately, we we also know that the hardest hit productions are going to be music festivals. So when they come back, which they won't come back the same, obviously, at least not for the foreseeable future. How do, How does everyone else survive? Yeah, right now, um, a lot of companies have to get different grants and different relief funds because the reality is without it, they won't survive. So a lot of production companies are shutting down and won't recover from the loss of income and the loss of staff. So for, you know, it's great for DJs who are able to make money with a fraction of the production costs, but without supporting the behind the scenes people who make festivals and events truly happen, you won't get to see them in the future. Last week, we spoke about 49-year-old music producer Eric Murillo being charged with sexual battery charges. He was due for a court appearance September 4th, but get this, on September 1st, a few days prior to his court date, he was found dead in his Florida condo. The police have not yet released cause of death, but there is speculation around the internet that it was most likely suicide. What are your thoughts, Mario? Oh dear. Well, yes, we did cover this. And of course, no one wants to see anyone pass away, let alone obviously someone who who has, you know, potentially influenced a lot of people and a lot of people's careers. We, we can't forget that, you know, DJs, Although, you know, they have flaws, they, they're also, because they're obviously human, but they're also artists and their art can and is in association with other artists. And so it's, it's a really difficult thing to swallow. That's not to say anyone's death can just be, can just be sort of ignored. But when you have, when you, when people know who you are, it's even more important to honor what you left behind is, I guess, where I'm trying to get to. However, the reaction from Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, was very quick in terms of support from his peers and the people who he, who he was in business with. However, the dance community seemed to have a bit of a 50-50 kind of feeling towards him. And this is because of the fact that he was um, under suspicion. Well, I mean, the rape kit and the one that we reported on the show in early August, the rape kit showed that he had forced himself onto this woman. So he was definitely going to go down for that one. But Sinead, there were 10 other more reports that have since surfaced. So 10 other women have come forward. And of course, investigators were checking all the facts about the validity of their claims. But you know, I mean, what do you think about that? Like that's... Yeah, um, Eric Murillo actually turned himself in after the rape kit results came back. And I think for somebody who denied the allegations from the start, you would continue to not deny the allegations if they weren't real and you have the money as, you know, this famous DJ would have to hire a legal team to fight that for him. I think that he absolutely knew he was caught 
And I really disagree about honoring his music. There's a point where you can say, yeah, I liked his music and I purchased it at one point or I used to listen to it at one point. But if somebody's going to profit off of the damage that they've caused other people, you really have to take this moment to call into yourself and say, no, I can't, I can't continue to support his record label or his company or buy his songs on iTunes. It doesn't matter that he was once a legend because it turns out that he was a really terrible person who, you know, potentially raped and sexually assaulted multiple women. We know there's proof against one and we we'll never we'll never know proof against the others because there's no one to fight anymore. I feel really badly for his victim because she's never going to get the closure that she wants. And I've seen many people across Facebook and social media post that you're innocent until proven guilty. But because he can't go to court, he's never going to be proven guilty in the court's eyes. So it's just like this weird way of condoning the bad behavior and saying, oh, it didn't happen because now he's not here to fight those charges. Yeah, you make some really great points there. And I have, I guess, a, um, I don't know, maybe it's like a logical or philosophical. I'm not sure why my stance is that I'm trying to wrap my head around, by the way, I'm not a supporter of Eric Marillo, the human being. Just, just, just to be clear about that, okay? He clearly transgressed in ways that that no one should. So, you know, the only person that can really forgive him is God and 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 his and his survivors. However, you know, when it comes to the two differing opinions, I would never go out in public and pronounce that, oh, we need to respect his art. I'm I'm just looking at it clinically from an objective point of view. If I appreciate his music, I mean. Most of the time when I listen to things I really like, I don't really know the people creating it, right? Like I don't really know them. They could be doing horrible things that I've never witnessed or heard about or, or they've never been brought to trial for. So does that, you know, when we're looking at it from a psychological point of view, the music still affects me in a positive way. Then, of course, if I find out that the artist is a transgressor, is a criminal, then, you know, I wonder to myself, oh, should I keep listening to this music? So it will it will flavor my opinion, if you will. Anyway, Shanae, we are definitely going to talk about this and try to come to some kind of... T- I'm willing to be swayed by your argument for sure. And I like that we have two different stances here. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our Music Festival newscast and subscribe to our Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. All right, next up. A psychedelic startup is testing an app for taking recreational LSD trips more responsibly. So this article is by Max Jungeris via Startups. And he's talking here about for those people who signed up early enough. um, And of course, the Burning Man multiverse is this week. So for those who signed up for this app called Trip, there was a wait list. Apparently, they they were taking subscribers with this app. It's designed to help users experience psychedelic drugs and any other conscious expanding experiences more responsibly. So Trip is a side project of Field Trip, which is a Canadian startup that aims to mainstream the medical use of psychedelic substances like psilocybin by opening clinics in cities like New York and Los Angeles, but they're currently based in Toronto. Field Trip co-founder Ronan Levy characterized the app as harm reduction. With people stuck in their homes, he says, they're more likely than ever to use drugs. 
If people are going to go and use LSD, which is still very much a scheduled A drug and a very powerful molecule, they could do it by themselves with no support, no guidance, no information. Now, Shanae, you and I have talked about that. We agree with this, that you need to be safe. And then he goes on to say, or they can do it by using tools developed by a team of doctors, psychologists, and therapists. So Levy emphasized that the app can be used for mental exercises like meditation as well as with substances. That's clear when users are asked to identify what kind of trip they are taking. Users are given a series of emojis to pick from, including a mushroom, a person in a yoga pose, and a pill capsule. I mean, isn't that cool? And at any time, they can pause the experience to record voice memos. Now, he goes on to say, we want to really make it easy for people to record their experience. Like, oh, I just saw my grandfather for the first time on his deathbed. It really touched me. We want people to be able to document that, he says. So the scene is scored by AI-generated music tracks, courtesy of Lucid, a Toronto company that makes music designed to relieve mental stress. Users can view stats about the length of their trips and a chart showing how their moods have changed over time, almost like a psychotropic Fitbit. The app is not meant to replace the clinical treatment Field Trip specializes in. Rather, Levy says, it's meant to be more like tripping with a friend who knows what they're doing. Now, we could all use that. We're not suggesting that it replace anybody, Levy said. But for people who are going in it alone with psychedelic experiences or conscious expanding experiences, it's a great tool to make sure you're informed. Now, the cool thing here is the Field Trip website says, Field Trip is a new kind of mental wellness company. We combine the wisdom and the science of psychedelic medicine with personalized psychotherapy and mental health wellness practices. Now, there is another quote I want to read to you here, and this is from Field Trip's medical director, Michael Verbora. And he's saying, the idea is to get away from our reliance on antidepressants. So he says, traditional medicine is passive. You take a pill and then this pill is going to fix you. In our case, we're going to give you a drug and we're going to help you open up an opportunity for you to be your own healer. And then we're going to be here for you when you need us. So I think this is a great opportunity for a lot of people. And I will tell you one other thing. So let's distinguish it to Field Trip is a new research company in healing people who are depressed and they're using psychotropic drugs. And the reason that they started up well, they, the reason they're in business is because in recent years, scientists have begun looking for alternatives to antidepressants, which a study from McMaster University suggests are hard to kick because of extreme withdrawal symptoms. And Sinead, Canadians are among the highest consumers of antidepressants in the world. 86 dosages per 1,000, trailing only the U.S., which is 110 dosages per 1,000, then Iceland, then Australia, and then the list goes on and on. So, Sinead, most psychedelics, of course, are banned in Canada, including psilocybin and MDMA, which are most commonly known as magic mushrooms and ecstasy. And of course, there's also ketamine, which was famous during the 90s in the rave scene, and then still called Special K. I've never been one for it, but people still do it. Before I go on to the last part here in closing, I just kind of want to have your opinion on all this. Yeah, I think that it's a really great app that they've developed because they're right when they say people will do drugs anyways, and people who are, you know, experiencing psychedelics definitely shouldn't be alone in those moments and to be able to record that experience and kind of be walked through that experience as it's happening and having that support with maintaining, you know, COVID social distance rules. 
I think it's a it's a great opportunity to teach people responsibility. So one final last uh, fact here for you, Shanae, uh, is that in the 1950s, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know this, but the 1950s, Canadian researchers in Saskatchewan were considered world leaders in the research of psychedelics to treat a variety of diseases, including depression and alcoholism. So they were they were, you know, pioneers at the time. But there was another pioneer named Timothy Leary, who, of course, pioneered LSD and ushered in the counterculture movement of the 60s in the U.S., where psychedelics became synonymous with hippies and the counterculture revolution. And as a result, the U.S. and Canada banned them in the 70s, essentially putting an end to any of the research projects that were going on. And now because of the fact that evidence is coming out that people are getting hooked on antidepressants, uh, they know that this research is in their archives that says, hey, well, wait a minute, like, w- what about using these psychedelic drugs, which don't have any addiction properties to them, and then use them with trained doctors to help you, you know, o- overcome your depression. However, that's what they do in their clinics, right? And you can, you know, contact them and set up, you know, visits and all that and consultations. But this app is very different where basically they're being your little guide and it's like a little harm reduction information guide where you can interact with it and tell it how you're feeling. And it's going to give you, I guess, like a flow or it's going to let you, I don't know if someone's live on the app. I'm assuming there must be some AI kind of messaging where if you say one thing, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a chance it's going to give you the right answer. I don't know. We'll have to see how this all works out, but I am really fascinated by this because Imagine that kids had it at festivals. You do have to go test something if you're going to take it. But when you take it, that's another story, right? Because you could be taking the right amount. You could be taking the right drug. It's not tainted. And then you can have a really bad experience. And maybe having an app on a phone can help you, especially at home anyway. Illegal dance parties have been growing amid the pandemic. But a dangerous underground rave in Oslo has become a wake-up call to those holding and attending unsanctioned events. In Norway, an estimated 200 attendee private event in a secret bunker turned out nearly fatal. Several attendees were hospitalized with carbon monoxide poisoning immediately after the event. Luckily, no one died, but wow, was that a close call. This is a serious reminder of how dangerous secret events can be. The cave rave, it's now called. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Listen, Sinead, on the almost every week, since we started this podcast, we've been talking about these illegal plague raves, the plague raves as, was, as, as they're being termed now. And now we have the cave rave. I mean, you know, when I think about adults, because I'm assuming that there were some adults in there. I mean, the older you get, the more is expected of you. And I'm sure the people in there were not 16 and under. Now, if they were, that's even a bigger problem. But more is expected of you. More is expected of you. I can't say it enough. I think this is really, really dangerous. I hope this stops. One of the craziest things about this entire story, though, that according to local reports, the company that owned the bunker is not claiming responsibility for the incident and has condemned it as a serious break-in. It's a fucking bunker. (laughs) What do you mean a serious break-in? Unbelievable. Yeah, uh, people need to take accountability when things go wrong. And I think that that's the even bigger issue on this concept of, you know, unsanctioned events is when something goes wrong, nobody, nobody's there to take the blame and somebody needs to be held accountable for this. Yeah, the bunker. (laughs) All right. And lastly, hundreds head to desert to celebrate Burning Man, ignoring cancellation. Okay, so... 
We know Burning Man 2020 was officially canceled, of course, and there is this multiverse that we've been championing on the show. And by all accounts, it started off absolutely amazing yesterday. Uh, I'm going to get on it in a couple of days and check in, but I'm really excited about it as well. But some people went to the Black Rock Desert in an unofficial event. And uh, there's a quote here by Mike Fowler. We were worried at first coming out here, and he tells NBC4, we heard that the Bureau of Land Management may block people from getting out here, but that wasn't the case. Nobody was here. It's a socially distant burn this year, and everyone is really spread out across a desert, he continues. All reports suggest that the group is doing the best to follow social distancing guidelines. We knew people were going to come out here either way because of that spiritual connection to the area, says Bureaucracy, the event organizer. I mean, I love it how he doesn't even put his name in here. People made the decision to come here during a global pandemic, so we decided to keep people's camps 200 feet away from one another and to advise wearing masks when meeting others. If people feel safe, then they should make others feel safe. Now, the official Burning Man, of course, is being held August 31st to September 6th, and I would advise everyone to stick to that. <laughs> However, all being told, now that I read this, you know they are practicing social distancing. It is an outdoor event. So in comparison to the cave rave, this would be one that I would stomach a little better. It's like going camping just with more friends. That's all. Yeah, I read that actually thousands of attendees or thousands of people did the kind of their own mini burn as they hosted their own various um, gatherings. But I know that many people are upset that they didn't get to go and do that. And these people aren't adhering to the rules by hosting gatherings. But from what you've said and from different reviews, people kept their distance and, you know, stayed in their own groups. So I think it's all about the safety. And again, by hosting your own unsanctioned event, if something goes wrong, like if you're burning a giant sculpture, something could go seriously wrong. Somebody could get injured. And, you know, you need to have very responsible people. You need to talk to safety organizers like paramedics or the fire department and even at least notify them, hey, you know, there is this there's this gathering happening. Maybe you guys should stand by like something, anything just to, to maintain the safety of it. I agree with that. I think um, obviously, you know, there are a lot of reasons why this kind of situation differs so vastly from the previous one we just mentioned. However, you're right, the the infrastructure, uh, the control mechanism of Burning Man itself, an organization that's been around for 20 years or and more, is not there to protect everyone. And so you're right, people can potentially not know what they're doing and cause damage. And, and California is burning like crazy. So I don't know how much wildfire can, can go in Nevada, but you know, I, I think um, probably not as much as the desert and all. If, if everyone was being responsible, it doesn't sound like they weren't. So that I think works out in my opinion. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector. So you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, 
or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye. 